you know, some of the subsequent deals that they worked out with Universal, you know, maybe some of the deals where they were able to get Universal to to tackle some of the back office stuff. I mean, it's like very unsexy, but you know, that's clearly an area where they needed to improve. So to give up some more of your, let's say, to give up part of your, to give up some cash in terms of like higher distribution fee in order to have Universal, you know, cover some of this stuff. It's kind of like a boring dark horse candidate, but you know, I mean, you could say that that that's probably useful in terms of buttoning things up. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. All right, today's episode is all about the one, the only Cash Money Records. I got the one and only Zach O'Malley Greenberg here who has reported on this company many times before we ran to this company and the business moves they did in our top 10 revolutionary list last year. So Zach, welcome back. I'm excited for this one. Always good to be here with you, Dan. Yeah. So for the folks listening, we are going to do this in a few ways. We got a bunch of categories here that we're going to run through just evaluating cash money as a business, some of the highs, some of the lows and just where they stand overall. But I think it would be great to kick it off with the question that we often hear from folks. Is Cash Money the greatest hip-hop record label of all time? What's your point? What's oh, your man. Take? You know, I mean, I think it's sort of like uh, any of these greatest ever. Are, are you talking about uh, overall body of work or sort of like, you know, the, the label at its peak? But, you know, I think I think you got to take it in an overall body of work, you know, type of thing. You know, I... It's hard to it's hard to top Def Jam, I think, you know, if you were gonna go with an overall body of work hip hop legacy, but you know, I don't know. Other than that, I mean it's hard to say that there's anybody who you'd put above cash money, I'd say, especially something that is, you know, really artist founded in that same way. I mean, you could talk about Bad Boy, you could talk about Rockefeller, uh, but I think that, you know, Cash Money's had staying power, you know, through Drake and Nikki and Lil Wayne and so forth you know, in, in a way that, you know, I, I would argue that, that a lot of other, these other labels haven't. And, you know, who else can say that they've had Drake for, for that long? And I guess he's not there anymore. But man, that was that was pretty recent development and it's been a pretty great run. So, you know, to go all the way from the early 90s, you know, through, through basically now being relevant, stacking up all that catalog, you know, it's it's certainly, if not number one, it's, you know, got to be top, top three, if not top two. Yeah, so... My answer is Def Jam as well, and we'll get to Def Jam in a minute, but the case for Cash Money is this, and I know a few people have said it, Irv Gotti recently said it, Russell Simmons himself said that Cash Money was the greatest hip-hop company that has come through, but the case for Cash Money, you mentioned it earlier, the fact that they did it while owning the core asset in the music and still doing that moving forward says a lot, not something that can be said about Def Jam and many of the others that would be even in the conversation. I think even a newer label like Quality Control, they've still done a while owning it. Well, at least up to this point from some rumors that are happening. But I think that's one case for Def Jam. But then I think the continued run of success from everything that happens in the 90s from, I guess we could start with like Juvenile dropping Ha in 98. And then pretty much everything from Drake's last Cash Money album, which I believe was Scorpion. So if you're looking just at like that run from everything there, 
that is such a strong hit rate. And I think that's the thing too that I would give them over Def Jam is the hit rate of who were the artists we signed and what was their likelihood of success. And they were just able to do it even with the imprints. I mean, I think major record labels are so wrong with so many imprints that just never worked out. And for them to have, whether it's Young Money or even the smaller moments with Be The Best music or with Rich Gang, there was always something there and even though there was some conflict, and we'll get to that, I think that's the cash money case. The Def Jam case, though, I think, this is where I think, of course, Def Jam did end up becoming a major record label, so it's a little bit nuanced there, but I do think you have that 80s run, Beasties, LL, Public Enemy, you got the 90s run with all those artists too, especially looking at what Red Man, Method Man, DMX, I feel like they had New York on lock, and then 2000s, the Rockefeller Partnership, Murder, Inc., the video games. I mean, it's, I know the last decade hasn't been there, but it would be tough to not put Def Jam up top. But I understand if some people would consider Def Jam a major as opposed to, you know, an independent. So I, I, I get the nuance there. Right, right. And and being, you know, fully owned by a major as opposed to Cash Money, which merely has distribution agreement, you know, and you could look at, you know, I guess Def Jam was sold in chunks, but the total amount that sold for, you'd have to adjust for inflation and stuff, but I wonder how that would stack up against the current value of cash money today, which, you know, it's incredibly driven by the copyrights that they still control. And, you know, definitely hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, Lil Wayne kind of quietly sold his half of the, the Young Money Cash Money Partnership for a hundred million bucks a couple of years ago, that was before the catalog boom got really crazy and then kind of di- died down again. So, you know, that that's valuing what Birdman and Slim own, you know, just on the, the young money, cash money side of the business, you know, at nine figures. So th- there's, you know, there's a lot more to the company than that. Although that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the gold line, but still you, you got to think that, you know, this is still a, you know, centimillion dollar business. And, you know, I'd be curious to see what, what a, what a proper valuation, you know, what it would look like against the total value that Def Jam got, you know, in terms of dollars over the years. But, you know, when you think about who was hottest and what record label was hottest at, at any particular point, I mean, yeah, I think probably the, the peak was there was that year that Def Jam was, you know, getting sold or the second half of it was getting sold. And and Lior basically said to, to Jay and DMX, like, let's let's have two albums this year. And, you know, because the valuation is going to be based on revenues, not earnings and like the more you can sell, the more we get. And so, you know, that that moment at DMX at his peak and, you know, Jay, I think I'd say at least at his commercial, you know, record sales peak, you know, as, as an individual artist, you know, that that was that was about as hot as, as it could ever get for for any record label, I think. But, um, you know, that's it, a good it, point. But... So I guess if we were to compare <laughs> Def Jam's 98 and 99, like that run to yeah. Cash Money and I know there's a few runs you could put in there, but from an overall commercial perspective, it would have to be 08, 09, 2010, I would probably assume, because you get Carter 3, and then you get you know Drake's debut, Nikki's debut. I feel like it would probably be somewhere in there. Yeah, that's probably pretty close. I mean, that was a lot, you know, that was a lot of concentration within a couple of year period as well. You know, and I think the other thing about cash money uh, that maybe people sleep on to some extent is you know, just like the efficiency of the of the label, especially in the early days. And, you know, of course, we can get into some of the issues with with paying producers and so forth. But, 
you know, they really had system and, and, you know, it was going and finding artists that were bubbling up, you know, first in the New Orleans area. I mean, this is in the nineties and, you know, and then kind of just plugging them into the machine, right. You know, put, put them with stable producers in house, get Manny Fresh on there. And, you know, it was not like a, you know, high expense kind of situation, like maybe you would have seen with Def Jam or, you know, you know, some of the, some of the New York and LA labels, it was just like, you know, it was really like, um, you know, probably low, low cost, high output, you know, like there's a high margin business, low overhead, you know, it's lean and mean. So I think from, in that regard, cash money, you know, it might've been, it might've been the best business, you know, out of any record label, right. In terms of sort of like efficiency and profitability and stuff like that. That's a great point because if you look at that vibe, I think that was the vibe for the South overall. We saw that with No Limit as well, just with in-house production, cheap. That production does almost everything and the music videos aren't flashy. And the fact that I think they stuck with what they knew and what they were with well and eventually I think collaborations came, but that was something that they were hesitant about as well. Just thinking about Juvenile dropping 400 Degrees. And I'm going back to that just because that's the first album that comes after that 1998 Universal deal, which we can, which we'll talk about soon. But that album, I'm pretty sure the entire production value for those music videos probably costs less than one of the suits that Puffy and Mace wore in the <laughs> music videos or, yeah. the, or Jay-Z's Sunshine music video, which I know has been talked about for years on end, but that's what the vibe was. This was there were no hype Williams music videos coming through Cash Money right. at least at that point. I know they came later when Wayne blew up further, but that's what they did. They stuck to what they did, and it worked. It worked so well. Warren Buffett would love Cash Money. Oh yeah, he loves low cost <laughs> cash value cows. value investor. Right, early Cash Money would be the Warren Buffett play. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. And the thing is, too, you talked about it earlier, just some of the things leading up to the big deal that they had. But even back in those early days, even before the Universal deal, Birdman and Slim, the co-founders of Cash Money Records, had a history of legal issues with artists and not paying artists on time. And I actually have a list here, and it's probably an incomplete list, but artists that have had some type of dispute or issue with Cash Money Records when it comes to payments. So I have... Lil Wayne, Pharrell, Clips, David Banner, Bangladesh, the producer, at least five or six artists before 1998, Wendy Day, who's not a artist, but one of the attorneys and people that helped make this deal happen, BG, Turk, Juvenile, Jazz Prince, of course, Drake himself, Tyga, Manny Fresh, and I'm sure I'm missing people from that list. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a long and storied list of people to have disputes with, and you know, it really is is something that goes, you know, um, hand in hand with the success. You, you can't ignore that history. So, you know, I think it is important to remember some of the context. You know, these guys were coming out of a completely different world, uh, you know, and they, they were hustlers. They were legit hustlers in New Orleans. And, you know, in doing some reporting, you know, I, I verified it. I mean, you know, they were they were the real deal. They moved things over. They went legit. They became they became record moguls and, and in Birdman's case became a rapper himself. And, you know, they were not people who had dealt with, you know, sets of books, right? There was not really necessarily like bookkeeping apparatus in, in their former business. So, you know, I think there was an adjustment period that 
you know, let's say perhaps went on for too long in terms of, you know, getting things papered up and straightened out. Uh, but, you know, I wrote a big story on them in, in 2019 for Forbes, where I went down to Miami and spent some time with Birdman and Slim. I talked to their lawyers a lot. I talked to Wendy Day, spent some time in the studio with them. And, you know, I mean, everybody, of course, has, if you ask people in the Cash Money camp, they're going to have their side of the story. If you ask whoever they're having the dispute with, you know, they're going to have their side of the story too. And, you know, I, obviously when there's smoke, there's fire. There's there's a hell of a lot of smoke when it comes to not getting paid on time. But what, what would the, you, you know, say the, is the, the cash money side of the story, though? The cash money side is 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 this. It, um, they, you know, started out as people who who had not had a formal training in business, doing business with a lot of other people who had not had formal training in business, who were represented by people who had not had formal training in business. And so when you go back to some of these early documents, it was not properly papered over on either side. And so there's a lot of question over, you know, who owns what. You know, I don't know that anybody who was involved in some of those early deals really, you know, had it had a full grasp of, of sort of, you know, music copyright and publishing and, and master recordings and all that. I mean, you know, it's not like an intuitive business, you know, it's like, wait, what, there's there's two rights to every song that like there's a there's a publishing and a recording is it separate. How does that work? So I think a lot of that was, you know, kind of like if you go back to the nineties the and early nineties, especially when they're getting started, you know, before the universal deal, there was just really like, you know, I would imagine a lot of handshake deals, a lot of just, you know, kind of like, let's see how, how it goes sort of stuff. A lot of, you know, here, we're going to give you a bag of cash and, and you do that. You give us this beat or you, you give us a verse or whatever. So, you know, it, it makes sense to me that it might not be papered up properly, but you know the fact that that's continued, you know, so far into the future, you know, that's another story. So, uh, you know, what they did say was that, you know, after and we talk more about this Universal deal, but after the Universal deal started, and then you know, as it continued to evolve, you know, to where Universal got an even bigger cut of you know distribution fee, or like an even bigger distribution fee than it had signed up for in the beginning, Universal took on more and more of sort of the back office function. And so, you know, some of the more recent stuff is, is, uh, you know, a, a little, a little bit more papered up properly. So that's, that's the cash money side, but you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, when I did the story and I reached out to all, all, all these folks, you know, what I got was like a no comment, which, which says to me that, you know, things have been settled up and they, and they kind of don't want to get into it anymore. Right. Uh, or maybe there was an NDA involved. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, a, a lot, a lot of smoke, a lot of smoke in the, in that area for yeah. sure. The NDAs are key. I remember there was one of the people that I had mentioned earlier that I was going to have on the podcast of Trapital. The interview timing didn't work out, but that was one of the first things they said. They were like, if you have any questions for us about Birdman and his relationship with this artist or anything like that, no, we're not answering it. And I was just like, all right, noted. Like, And I feel like that's kind of ran true with a lot of this. But I think they... And Birdman and Slim specifically, in an odd way, it wasn't even just them alone. I feel like there was this ethos of, you could almost put Suge Knight into this same category as well, but these people that were cutthroat with business folks that they were doing major deals with, whether it was Suge Knight with the folks at Interscope or Birdman with Universal, of like, hey, I'm going to take what's mine. And rightfully so, they kept ownership over what worked for them and they did that, but they kept that same energy with a lot of the people that like worked with them on the other side too. And that's the piece of it that while it was frustrating to see, 
there is actually some other sides to this too, because even the fact that I think we can get into it in a little bit, but just some of the artists they were able to sign, how they went about that, as frustrating as it was about them not paying artists, like there were not every aspect of the business was and is predatory. So that's one thing that, you know, started to come up more and more as once you get past the salacious parts of the details and stuff, you're like, okay, no, and no different than why you went down there to report them, right? There is nuance and there are a number of things to dive into. For sure, for sure. So shifting here, one of the other things that I've thought about, we talked a little bit about what set cash money apart. We talked a bunch about the backstory and the bad rap, but the next thing up here is about cash money itself and whether or not you think that it succeeded because of Birdman and Slim or it succeeded despite them. So thinking about this hypothetical world, if it even is possible, of other folks that would have had this label in their hands and what things would have. What's your take there if we're really isolating them as business leaders? I absolutely think it succeeded because of them. I mean, did they get in their own way some of the time? Absolutely. But I think, you know, anybody who can run a business that goes from like the early 90s in an informal economy, you know, in, in like the Louisiana area to being this global thing, you know, to this day that that is still, you know, very much at the forefront of an industry. I mean, you know, that like they got to be doing something right, you know, 30, 30 plus years on the staying relevant. And, you know, from like the early days, of hot boys to like the late nineties and, you know, uh, you know, the, remember big timers and oh, yeah. still flying all that, you know, heyday as we were alluding to and sort of like the late aughts and early, you know, 2010s, you know, of cash money, young money with, with Nikki and Drake. And Wayne, uh, you know, even even coming through to you know to you to say Scorpion, I mean that's a really long run of relevance, and you know have that. I mean, yeah, like I said, they got to be doing something, right? Yeah, I think it's because of them too. I will because as much as there are issues that we've talked about a lot of them here, there's so much of this that would have succeeded with folks, other folks in charge, because there are a lot of record labels from the South that tried to do what Cash Money did as well. And a lot of them came and then most of them went. And the fact that we're having this conversation and not having it about them is part of it. And a lot of those record labels had talented people as well, but things just didn't carry over. They may have taken you know, a bigger deal to get more money up front, but then the hypothetical is, let's say it was in the hands of someone else that wouldn't have been able to push it forward. Then it becomes part of the island def jam conglomerate and then just kind of gets mixed and mixed. And then it becomes one of the many labels that you hear about where it's like, oh yeah, whatever happened to this one or that one. And I think it took what could have easily, because there would have been enough meat on the bone if we just talked about cash money from the early nineties up until let's say the mid two thousands. Right. And I, and I think that's a, a inflection point that we can talk about in a little bit even that itself was a great run itself and then you look at the second half of the career from like the mid-2000s on that's a whole nother historic record label they have two of those under the same house i think it's because of them and as much as it can be frustrating to hear and see and you know unlikely there's some critical things but let's let's jump into that now though uh because i think one of the questions you have here is the biggest signing that this record label has had what do you think is the biggest signing for cash money? Oh man, you know, I think probably the easy answer is Drake, but you know, I would actually say Lil Wayne because if you don't have Wayne, I don't think the Drake thing happens, you know, and really Lil Wayne from such a young age, um, going all the way back to the Hot Boys and, and, you know, coming through, I mean, all, all those Carter albums, 
you know, like he's the the backbone of this whole operation, you know, musically, sonically. And I think without him, you don't you don't get uh, everything else that comes along. What do you think? Yeah, it's Wayne too. That's who I have. I know that Drake is the highest commercial artist. If you were to look at all of the numbers, and I think without him, the past decade would have looked very different. But we would still be having this conversation in some form, likely if it wasn't for the past decade of Drake. It may be a bit more truncated, but we may not be having this conversation at all if it wasn't for Wayne. So I think it Absolutely. has to be Wayne there. What do you think is the best business move for Cash Money? You know, I'm going to go back to that first deal that they struck with Universal. I was in the early 90s at Wendy Day, who, who we mentioned earlier, was, was sort of like a go-between who helped, you know, really get them, you know, kind of set up properly with this deal. Uh, but, you know, they negotiated it and and they just, you know, they, they wouldn't take anything less than something that they felt was an incredible deal. And and I remember the the story that, that Slim told me is that they went in, they sat down, some mid-level executive at Universal lowballed them to straight up buy half the company. And so he and Birdman just got up to leave. Uh, then Doug Morris walks in and he was the head of Universal at the time, uh, comes in with another colleague, Mel Lewinter. And Slim remembers, you know, Doug saying, hey, if I were you, I wouldn't sell my company either. He comes in and offers him $30 million advance just for the privilege of doing business. And, and what does Universal get? A 7% distribution fee, which is not a lot. Uh, you know, so so kind of almost doesn't make sense from Universal's perspective, unless you think about it in terms of market share. Market share is so important when you're the biggest record label because there are all these great things that happen when you have the most market share. There are all kinds of rights that are assigned based on market share. Like anytime there's a, you know, a mislabeled song that gets played or gets spun, and, and this happens a lot. The metadata in music is is a disaster. So if, you know, there are these huge pots of sort of like unresolved money, and and you know th what they eventually do is they get resolved down by market share. And so if you're Universal, you know you get the lion's share of that. And there's a lot, a lot of other things, a lot of other places where calculations are done based on market share. You can also brag, say that you're the biggest stuff like that. So um, you know certainly it was worth it for Universal to come in, and and especially you know you think about it at the time, you know hip hop was still in a nascent stage, and particularly hip hop in the South was like not even really on the map for, for Universal to be, be able to come in and have this connection was really great for them. But but yeah, I mean, what a great deal. 30 million bucks, you don't have to give up anything. You just get, you know, just give a distribution fee. And frankly, you would want your stuff to be distributed by this, you know, enormous record label anyway, so that you could you could expand and get bigger and better. So I think hands down, that's it. You know, that, that didn't stop that there are rumors, you know, that they were even bootlegging their own music like out the back of <laughs> of wherever, so that they didn't have to pay the the seven percent. But I, you know, I don't know. I mean, uh, that's that talk about you know efficient business. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think you go back to that deal that that kind of laid the groundwork because if they had given up half of their company way back then, I mean, you see what happened. Jay Z gave up, you know, a huge chunk of Rockefeller early on, and and I think was just let never really that incentivized you know, to make that his main thing anymore because, you know, he'd given up such a big chunk early on. So, yeah, uh, it's it's one of the best deals we've seen in music and one of the best deals we've seen in hip hop over the past 30 years without question. And the fact that they were able to get everything you mentioned, plus 
$2 million advance for three years. They kept ownership of the Masters too. And that's the thing that, as we talked about, Birdman and Slim are still collecting on that year after year. So it's it's up there. It's, it's, it's incredible. And I know that there were other labels that tried to do the same, but just couldn't. I think part of the reason is too, is that this goes back into them focusing on what works for them. They had a unique sound. Universal saw this as their entryway to the South in an authentic way because back then, you know, the South was still vying for dominance. And I know that, you know, things were happening at LaFace, but this was different. The New Orleans sound was different from what was happening in Atlanta at the moment. And this gave you entry path into that. So it was big time. Yeah. 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 And, and I think, you know, also $30 million back then, I mean, probably more like 50, $60 million when you talk about inflation, but you know, I, I would, to our earlier point, you know, did cash money succeed, you know, because of or despite Slim and Birdman, you know, that's that situation where, you know, obviously I wasn't there and there wasn't a video of it. But, you know, when you sit down with Slim and Birdman, like you can, you get the sense that it would be tough to negotiate with them. You know, I mean, Slim's sitting there, he's like 10 feet tall. He doesn't really talk very much, you know, and Birdman, he can get pretty loquacious, but like uh, he, you know, when he wants to, you know, be kind of stone faced you know, I mean, he, he can, he can have a great poker face. So I think, you know, if you're, if you're some executive, you're going in and you're trying to get them to sell and they have really no incentive to sell and they're sitting there, you know, just like, nope, we're good. You know, I think, I think that that leads you to offer them some crazy deal, like the one that Universal offered. And, and so I really would chalk that up to some very good negotiating on, on their part as well. Yeah. You need to be able to negotiate to pull off hip hop's Louisiana purchase. Got to at least one half Absolutely. of it. Absolutely. At least one <laughs> half of it. Yeah. So yeah. the other thing that I did have was a dark horse move and a move that doesn't get talked about as much. And as much as that move does get focused on, the one dark horse that I did have is the, well, I guess two, but let me focus on this one. I would say that the mixtape strategy that they had with Lil Wayne in the mid to late 2000s even though Cash Money had ownership of the music, even though this, I think that worked so well because one of the questions that we have is just how well did this company record label transition from different stages of music, whether it was from the CD era to ringtones or ringtones to streaming and Cash Money knocked it out of the park with each of these. Their albums sold, especially when they did this deal at the height of the CD era when music industry was struggling in the mid 2000s and they were trying to get people to buy CDs. They were just like, Hey, let's give away the music for free. And Wayne was rapping over other beats. He was in his bag more than anyone. And from dedications to drought, all of those, just so many classics in there that I think real hip hop fans and folks that were following Wayne were following even more so than the next album. So that all of that speaks to Lil Wayne being able to sell over a million albums in the first week when the Carter three drops in 2008, which is still a very tough time for CD sales to even happen. So that whole run and just the thought to do that. And granted, I think some of this may have been a bit more on Lil Wayne's push himself, especially because at that point he had his own young money imprint, but all of this is happening. And, you know, Birdman and Slim had a problem with it. They could have said no, but I think the fact that they leaned into the change that was happening. You already saw what 50 Cent did with his mixtapes in the mid-2000s. You get drama, you get the other folks in the South to be able to help make this happen, and I think it worked out well for them. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point, too. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I guess when you have a label that has been that successful that long, 
Yeah, there, there should be a couple different options for what the best move was. Yeah. So I like that as a sleeper pick. Yeah. And Lollipop is the best-selling ringtone of all time, too. Over 5 million <laughs> yeah. ringtones sold. And I mean, oh, ringtones man. are selling for like 3 bucks each at that point. So, I mean, $15 million just from folks wanting to, you know, oh, have, tough. you know, that little jingle on their Motorola Razors <laughs> or whatever the hell people were yeah. using at that point. But uh, what was your dark horse? Oh, man. That's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I guess it was just so clearly the universal deal to me, but... You know, and Drake wouldn't really be considered a Dark Horse candidate. I guess you could say as time went on, you know, some of the subsequent deals that they worked out with Universal, you know, maybe some of the deals where they were able to get Universal to to tackle some of the back office stuff. I mean, it's like very unsexy, but, you know, that's clearly an area where they needed to improve. So to give up some more of your, let's say, to give up part of your, to give up some cash in terms of like higher distribution fee in order to have Universal, you know, cover some of this stuff. It's kind of like a boring dark horse candidate, but you know, I mean, you could say that that that's probably useful in terms of buttoning things up. And you know, there there was there was a lot of smoke, like we said, but you know, never nothing ever like the house never burned down. So you know, maybe maybe those kinds of arrangements really kind of help prevent something like that from happening. And I think that back office piece also just makes me think about the broader partnership and the expertise that they were able to lean on. And a question that I actually didn't explore, but now I'm thinking more about it is. How different do we think that the universal partnership would have been, let's say, Cash Money had partnered with another label under the universal umbrella? Because obviously part of this is, this is very close. There was Universal Republic at the time, and they've been hand-in-hand working with Monte and Avery Littman ever since. And they are two of the most highly regarded executives in the game that have now been year after year after year, the label with the number one market share. And part of that is because of cash money itself, but it's also because of all the other stars, even outside of that label, they've been able to bring to, as opposed to many of the other labels in the universal umbrella or the umbrella of universal music group labels that have not had that consistency. So I also think there's a dynamic there where let's say there's another world where cash money was under capital or cash money was under some of these other labels that have struggled to stay relevant, what that would have looked like. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if you kind of, you know, to go back to Def Jam, you know, some of some of the back and forth that Def Jam has had over the years, it, it gives you an idea of, of even as like a, a top label, the kind of trials and tribulations you might go under. But you know, when you're when you're coming in, you know, going directly to Doug Morris, you know, that, that gives you a lot of leeway, a lot of leverage. You got that line straight to the top. And, you know, even with somebody like Jay, it took him, it wasn't until, you know, I don't know, with the late aughts when he was dealing directly with Doug Morris when Doug this is, I think, around the time of Blueprint 3, and Jay had that line, I gave Doug a grip, I lost the flip five stacks. There was something about yeah. the, you know, he, he could have the album, uh, they bet $10 million on a, or $5 million on a, on a coin flip, and like, you know, one way or the other. <laughs> so, you know, but, but Birdman is somewhere doing that, like, you know, 15, 15 years earlier, having that kind of direct line. So, you know, again, I think going straight to the top served them incredibly well. Definitely, yeah. Another another piece too. So two other, like aesthetically, three other dark horse candidates I'll bring up, but they're all under the same thing was Birdman's ability to win bid wars and win huge bidding wars, I think is an underrated piece of this record label. So I'll bring up three of them. First one, go back to 2004. So this is around the time that the Carter came out and Wayne was considering to leave Def Jam, and this was around the time that Jay-Z had just became president, and Jay-Z pushed hard 
make that happen. And leave cash money for Def Jam. That was the thought, right? Yeah. Yeah. Carter, Carter boys. And they're all these, you know, kind (laughs) of, yeah, they're, yeah, they're trying to push the whole Carter board thing. And Birdman was like, all right, come through. I'll give you your own imprint. And you are the president of that imprint and let's continue this thing. And that obviously sets up young money. And then the next 15 years after that. Right. So he does that. And I think that's huge because then that sets the stage for the bidding war for Drake, because Drake drops so far gone beginning of 2009 and this is like you know everyone is trying to it's like Wemba Yamba sweepstakes we're seeing in the NBA right now everyone wants this person and everyone was going after them I mean Chili Greenwald Lior everyone was trying to get him and it was that connection that Drake had had with Cortez Bryan and Jay Prince Jazz Prince and that whole crew that I think eventually helped keep him on the cash money roster there so that was a huge one. And I think we saw something similar with Nicki Minaj as well. A couple months later, everyone wanted her. Beam me up, Scotty. The mixtapes were hot. And he, Wayne, Wayne was like, no, I want her to be the, the first lady of the label. That was the whole thing in the 2000s, right? Everyone wanted to have the first lady. You saw it in the 90s, right? But like right, everyone right. wanted to like declare and elevate this person, and rightfully so. But like that's what we had. And then we obviously saw the beginning and the middle part of that next decade just go on one of the all-time runs so birdman's ability to win against the biggest people in the industry for a record label that him and you know his brother own is really impressive for sure and you know it served little wayne well in the end because young money became something that he was able to sell for you know about a hundred million dollars for his stake later on too so you know keeping that ownership as opposed to just chasing the biggest advance time and time again we see in hip-hop you know, it's so important. But, you know, I, I was thinking the other night, uh, it's funny, like I rewatched New Jack City uh, and it had been ages, ages, ages. And it, it reminded me, I mean, how much of the whole young money, cash money uh, situation is is modeled after elements of that movie. I mean, even just like the name cash money or CMB, YMCMB, the shirts, like the shirts are incredibly similar the, you know, a lot of the lines, even the Carter, the, you know, the albums are named. I mean, the Carter was the building, you know, where Wesley Stein's character was was like running this whole operation out of. So, you know, th- that's kind of like a, another interesting element to the whole, you know, to the whole narrative. Like, you know, these guys coming out of Louisiana, you know, had their eyes on, on this very New York kind of, you know, almost role model uh, for for a business. And, you know, uh, they had been hustlers. They were kind of modeling themselves after these, you know, fictional hustlers in New York, and you know, and then in a way, out hustled sort of like the the New York record label establishment. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting, uh, you know, little little side bit of color to the whole story, and 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 like a bit of irony as well, you know, when you talk about South versus uh, New York kind of situation too. And I think that also speaks to some of that mentality too, because here you have Birdman that was getting inspiration from a black crime movie. And I think a lot of the ways of him doing business is very much central on, okay, I want to support and uplift the black community, do what I can here. And Grids, and I think, you know, part of how he was able to do that is, you know, been quite controversial just with certain artists he's had on. But still, I think that ethos stems back from ownership and trying to keep things in-house as much as you can. And it took them a lot to even partner with other artists from other parts of the countries and stuff like that, that I think you saw with Nino Brown and how he was in that movie and how he carried himself. 
versus I think someone like Jay-Z who record label Rockefeller named after one of the great white business magnets that you had in this country right. and so many Jay-Z bars, whether it's Black Axel Rose, Black Kurt Cobain, called me this. I, I feel like, you know, people always get on Kanye for some of that, like always trying to like be okay, I'm, you know, the black version of whatever X person. But I think Jay-Z, you know, also had a lot of that too. And then I think also looking at his business mentality, a lot of his success came from his huge and lucrative partnerships with established companies in this space. So the inspiration, I think, also became kind of telltale sign for the type of businesses these types of folks ended up creating too. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, Brown was a really ruthless character. And, and you know, I think part of the, there, you know, the, there's like the the money and the success that's glamorized, but, you know, it's a gritty movie. I mean, it, he, like he is not a likable guy in the end, you know, without giving too much of the plot. I'm sure everybody's seen it, but like, I was like, wow, yeah, I don't know if I'd be wanting to like model myself after this dude, you know, he's, he's like, it's pretty brutal, but, but, you know, even on the, on the, uh, you know, kind of the lighter side, there's a scene where he's like giving out turkeys at Thanksgiving Yep. and you know, the cash money guys always give out turkeys in New Orleans at Thanksgiving. And I wonder if they got that directly from the movie, you know, cause, cause so many of, you know, from the Carter, you know, the CMB kind of, kind of like whole, whole, uh, you know, ethos there. I wonder how much of that they, they just pulled directly from the movie. So, Oh yeah. I could definitely see that mentality it. too. And speaking about it, you know, full circle, I could also see Birdman having a bit of that cancel that bitch mentality too in right, certain situations. Right. 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 Exactly. So yeah, I mean, and they won't talk about that part of it, the interviews maybe, but you kind of get the sense of like, that's where the negotiation and the, the, uh, the cash, the cash element of the cash money comes in. Yeah, I mean, Nito literally held people over the balcony of a building to get what he wanted, right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that came through to fruition. But next category up here, so missed opportunity. Is there anything that you look at that you're like, man, obviously it's an overall successful company. Is there anything you look back on about, huh, what if they did this differently or what if they did that differently? I think the number one thing I wonder is, what if they had sold the whole thing, you know, a year and a half ago? could they have gotten just an insane multiple? I mean, you know, you're seeing like Springsteen staying and all these guys getting hundreds of millions of dollars for the catalog. So, you know, I get it. And there's, you know, catalogs, hip hop catalogs are valued differently from rock catalogs. And also one of the benefits of rock catalogs is they're usually, uh, you know, written and owned by, you know, all the rights are with the band. There's not like a million different producers coming in. It's not as complicated. So like, you know, they can sell the whole thing, you know, hundred percent of the rights and you don't have to, you know, it's not like you're just buying like, you know, I don't know, 30% of this and 50% of that and whatever. It's, it's not this complex web. Let's say that there, there may not be as many things that haven't been papered over as there were with cash money, but man, you know, th there were some pretty insane, uh, numbers flying around. And, and I really wonder if, you know, if they had, uh, been applying some, you know, 20 or 30 X multiple, to whatever they were pulling in, you know, which is, you know, they can just sit there and make, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year uh, just off of this catalog. I mean, so what what would the market have been if they had if they had went and sold, sold the whole thing at the peak of the catalog boom? Uh, that's that's what I really wonder. That's a good one. So I guess some high level back of the envelope math on that. So let's say that the peak of the catalog boom was like 
December 2020, maybe, and then like, you know, into the spring of 2021. And we definitely saw some 30x multiples there. And at least the last public number I saw, and I think you had this in your your latest in one of your latest articles as well, but that cash money's masters generated around thirty million dollars annually, or twenty to thirty million. Was that the number? Yeah, I think it was at least thirty. And you know, because Bird, like most of Birdman, you know, has been making like close to twenty million dollars a year uh, for a while, give or take. And you know, most of that is is just you know the catalog. So yeah, I mean, that's just his cut. And then if you figure you double that for Slim, yeah, probably you know, it was around thirty, thirty-five, something like that. So. You know, yeah. I mean, are they going to get a 30x valuation even at the peak? I don't, I don't, I don't think so because just hip hop wasn't getting that kind of valuation. I don't really understand that because everybody's like, oh, rock and roll music is going to stand the test of time. It's like if you ask the average 20 year old who Bruce Springsteen is, they're not going to know. I mean, so I would argue that that hip hop is actually going to be more valuable down the line, but but just the value, the, you know, that's not what people have been paying for. So even at the peak, you know, I, I don't know that I saw. Uh, any 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 valuations anywhere near thirty? I think Kanye was shopping his catalog at one point and wanted a thirty x multiple, but you know didn't didn't get any bites. So I think it comes down to like yeah, what kind of multiple could they actually have gotten? Yeah, um, because even more recently, so yeah, we're recording this now, January twenty twenty three. There was a report that just came out about Dr. Dre selling a collection of music assets that I believe are worth different multiples, but the number that I heard from that was. They generate around ten million dollars per year, and that he wanted two fifty, and he's getting just over two hundred million, or somewhere between that. So that's around a twenty x multiple for a deal that sounds like it was still coming underway in twenty twenty two. So if you were to put that multiple on, let's call it thirty five million dollars for maybe what Birdman and Slim have collectively, then that is you're talking seven hundred million dollars. So that's a pretty sizable number, not a billion, but Maybe if there are some concerns about uh, maybe there's a bit more of a split of who owns what. We didn't even talk about publishing right now, but there may be a split too, especially if everything was captured there. And even thinking about quality control, for instance, and I think they got around 400 million, 300 got 400 million, but this was last year. So I would assume that 500 to 750 sounds if i heard a number there i would be like sounds about right if i heard a number lower than that or higher than that i would probably be surprised one way or the other yeah yeah i mean i think i think that makes sense and it's not just one artist you know obviously it's a whole bunch of artists and a bunch of pieces of different artists but i think another thing and this is maybe one of the reasons why the hip-hop valuations are lower is like when you have all those producers it might not be as easy to get you know to get clearances for for using stuff in commercials and, and that sort of thing whereas if you buy 100 percent of the rights there's no you know there's no question right uh, and so i'm not even sure if somebody owned one percent of, of something whatever like i don't think they would have some like veto right about the song being played in a commercial but uh but you know when you start to have so many different parties owning bigger stakes of a particular song it, it can get a little convoluted and uh you know i, I do wonder if that's a big part of it as well yeah no, that's a good point. Yeah, because I think sampling also is a huge piece of that as well. The missed opportunity for me, this is a bit more of a specific one from like a time frame, not like a specific move, but Birdman and Lil Wayne not settling and squashing the beef in the issues that they had in the mid-2010s. I think we lost out on Wayne. I know Wayne was in prison during part of this, but we lost out on his momentum. We lost out on a lot there because 
I feel like a lot happened from the Carter 4 coming out in 2011 to the Carter 5 coming out in 2018, I believe. There was so much back and forth. There was so much drama. You know, Wayne was going, not Wayne, Drake was going on his all-time run at that point. Nikki was doing the same. And the fact that the signature biggest artist is literally tweeting out, I want off this label, but it's not that easy. Or sending these messages out in the middle of Wayne and Drake having their tours and him still being on albums and trying to figure out how to drop things. I think it was obviously a great decade and run, but it, I think it could have been even greater if they were able to solve some of that stuff and figure it out. Yeah, 100%. You know, that that was like, it's a long time to be going between uh, proper albums, you know. So, and I think that was a really interesting time in the music business. And I mean, the music business changed completely, right? From, from 2011 to 2018 from being, you know, oh, this new streaming thing is going to be important to like, you know, it is the entire business basically. So, you know, and I think that an artist like Wayne, you know, is somebody whose music translates really well to, you know, to that medium. And, uh, you know, as we know, hip hop is, is, is a monster on streaming and, and, you know, tends to do really well. So I would have been really curious to see if, if he had been able to continue that momentum, you know, just how much bigger he could have gotten in that period of time too. Yeah, definitely. The other, the other, the next piece we had too, I think we talked a little bit about this just in terms of how did the label handle the transitions. And I think you just mentioned it there. They were able to do a lot of it well, especially the mixtape piece and the ringtones. And then I think a lot of it laid the work for streaming and Drake is streaming did a lot of that, the cash money label. So I think that worked, but this next question is interesting though, because it's been around three years. I think it's been at least three years since you did your deep story, the Forbes cover story on Cash Money where you went down and interviewed them. And then I know it's been four years since I had written a piece around the time that Drake had completed Scorpion and we knew that it was going to be, or at least I thought the future may be bleak. And I think the question that you posed in the piece was, can they strike platinum again? It's been three years since now. What do you think? You know, I don't know. I mean, it also, the rules for platinum, like what constitutes platinum have, have changed so much that, you know, all it takes is, is you get you know, one uh, hot signing and they do really well on streaming and suddenly you have a platinum, whatever, and, you know, it's like, okay. I think that, you know, Drake is gone. Wayne is gone. When I went down there, they were really big on Blueface and Jacquees. Yeah. I, I don't know that, that either of them are, are turning out to be like, you know, any, I mean, anywhere near Drake, Nikki, Wayne, et cetera. Jacquees uh, is I, I the king of R&B though. <laughs> right that that was the whole thing too <laughs> so i'm gonna you know what i'm gonna go with no i don't think they will strike platinum again but i would caveat that by saying it doesn't matter because they can just sit back and and collect these checks and and that's gonna happen that'll happen even if you know drake and nikki and and wayne retire i mean the, their back catalog stuff is still gonna be a gold mine and you know when i was down there what they said was that they're forever in business with Drake, uh, but they wouldn't get more specific. And so what I took that to mean was, you know, at the time, you know, he was he was kind of extricating himself. But even once he's gone, they're still sitting on these, you know, their their share of the, the copyrights that will be, you know, Drake is the streaming king and they have a big piece of that. So, yeah, do I think they'll strike platinum again? You know, probably not, but I don't really think it matters. I don't think it, it's like, what are they going to do? Like, what are they going to do? They're going to sit back and collect those checks. Yeah, I, I came to the same spot as well. 
I, I guess platinum in the purest sense of having a chart hit. Sure. There could be legacy hit that gets, you know, some viral thing on TikTok, And then that becomes a hit. Like, I don't know. I don't know if like slow motion single, like juvenile went platinum, but I feel like that's the type of song I could see go viral in some TikTok thing. And then brings new light to that. That's one of my cat favorite cash money songs. And I feel like I could see something like that happening. But I feel yeah. like you were kind of posing it more so in the moment of looking at these runs of like late two th- late nineties, early two thousands. That cash money is like a platinum moment, or mid two thousands Wade's mixtape run, late two thousands, early twenty ten or to mid twenty tens Young Money rises to the highest of heights. I don't think we'll see that moment again, and it's crazy because I think there were times where maybe things could have happened. You had the rich gang moment where he looked like he was so close with young thug and i feel like especially in 2014 people expected thug to go on to that superstar level and still very successful but i think that the stock for thug at that moment was a little higher than it maybe actually reached and i think some of thug's proteges kind of reached the heights that we thought thug would have reached at one point just in terms of a commercial success perspective but it just never quite happened but again they own this. It's not like they missed some opportunity. This is something that is literally generating tens of millions per year, and that's not changing anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's funny. They have, I guess, just to sort of like switch gears a tiny bit, but, you know, last moment when they said, when Birdman and some said they're forever in business with Drake, it wasn't in Miami, but it was, I met with them for some follow up questions in New York, and they have, uh, like, within Universal's building in Midtown, they have a cash money conference room. Like there, there are actually these, I mean, I don't think it's diamond plated, but they're, the door handles are giant dollar signs, like the cash money logo. And, and it looks like they're diamonds in the, the dollar sign and whatever it is, cubic zirconium or something. But, but you open up the thing and you go in and there's like all these plaques on the wall and it's just a conference room that's always there. And it's sort of like their designated conference room when they, when they cut the tat. And, and I remember, yeah, we sat down in that conference room and I, and I really tried to press them on the Drake thing. And I mean, if you dig up the, the Forbes story, we did a video too. And, and there's this great kind of like tense moment where I, where I'm like really kind of pushing them about it. And they're like, we're forever with Drake and that's, and like, that's it. And it's clear that's all you're going to get out of them. But, um, you know, so, so in terms of striking platinum again, yeah, I mean, I could almost envision a scenario where Drake like does the Super Bowl. And he plays some, you know, catalog hit that never went platinum and just like, just purely by the exposure of people hearing it be like, oh man, I gotta listen to that again. It just suddenly goes platinum again, you know, or for, for, for the first time. But yeah, short of that, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to agree with you. I think it's, I think probably not again, but that it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. So getting, so we have a couple of questions left here. This one, and I think it's maybe similar to the force you're bringing up, but if you were in Birdman and Slim's shoes today, is there anything that you would be doing differently? You know what? I think I go back to that question of like, would you sell the whole thing, especially if if the the prospects are kind of dimming a bit and, you know, it's like, I don't know though. I mean, you know, it's like if, if you're, if you're getting up there in age, like, would you, would you sell, you, you know, you got this great house that you bought, you know, you got this great Penthouse apartment in New York that you bought for like you know a hundred thousand dollars in in you know nineteen eighty two and uh, and you could probably get you know I don't know ten million bucks for it and then you could just like rent and do whatever you want and you know for the rest of your life but like you don't really need the money like you're fine as it is like do you sell it like what would you even do with the money that you got 
you really love living in that apartment, maybe you just stay. And I think that's kind of the point. Like, just remember being in, in the studio with Birdman and and he doesn't need to be doing this. Like, he doesn't need to be running around with Jacquees in Miami trying to make him the, the king of R&B or whatever. But he, he truly loves it. Like, you, you can tell that he's passionate about it. And after the interview was over, and I wish I had this on tape, but uh, but we're just like a dozen of us sit, sitting there in the room and and Birdman he goes uh he goes Zach why do people think I'm scary he's like he's like I'm and I remember he said it was like really pointy moment he's like I'm I'm respectful you know I'm not a clown I don't turn tables over I don't scream and yell I'm respectful why are people so afraid of me and I thought for a minute and I said you know as like look man like to be honest I think I think the base tattoos really are kind of like off-putting to some people who are not used to the to that sort of thing. And and he was like, yeah, I've been thinking of getting them removed. You know, it's a, I think it'd be better for business. So, you know, it's like, there's still this element of, you know, even though he's made it and, and he's got everything he wants, uh, there's still this, this part of him uh, that, that came from a different world that, you know, he's, he's kind of like still stuck between two worlds, between the world that he came up in and the world that he can afford to live in. And uh, I think, you know, where he feels at his best is in the studio. So why would you sell that whole thing? Why would you, you know, I mean, why would you kind of give that up? And I think Slim likes it too. And, you know, they 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 have this really funny relationship and, you know, Birdman's in the studio and Slim does the, the business and that's kind of the breakdown of it. And, and I just remember like uh, after this interview, you know, after leaving the studio, I went and we were all supposed to have dinner together and I went off with Slim and we waited for like a half an hour in the parking lot for Birdman and he just never showed up and then we went to dinner and he just never showed up and it's because he wanted to stay and he just he stayed in the studio he just stayed in the studio all freaking night because that's what he really loved so yeah I, I guess it's a long way of saying would I what would I do if I were them I mean you know probably like the financial advisor advice would be sell this big thing and then you're totally set for the rest of your life but you know if if it's throwing off enough more than enough money tens of millions of dollars every year for you to live on what's the point you know why not just just do that and and uh and do what makes you happy i think that's a piece that often gets forgotten and understood with some of this stuff is that some people really just love the craft it makes me think too yeah. about someone like martin scorsese or steven spielberg and these directors that are now in their 70s or 80s they're not doing these movies to try to make more money. Well, granted, yes, I think they're bought into the financial success. They want fair terms, but this is what they enjoy to do. They've been doing it since they were kids and they want to just find outlets to be able to do this at the best way possible. And I think the same could be said about Birdman of wanting to be in the studio and just wanting to have that energy. And if you sell that, then what do you do? I think especially for someone like him that's stuck to the thing that he does well and you know, like he isn't out here like Jay-Z trying to be mogul in the sense of having different things. I mean, there's a mogul aspect in terms of the media ownership, but not in the sense of like, yes, I own this, I do this, I do that as well. Sure, maybe there's some smaller things that are in the, you know, New Orleans or, or the Louisiana area, but not in that same way. So I do think that that speaks yeah. a lot to that. And I think they have dabbled in other stuff for sure. And, you know, real estate. And I think there was some period of time where they had like some oil rigs or something like that. They had they had a vodka called GTV. They were trying to really build up YMCMB as like as a clothing line type of thing rather than just merch. Uh, 
but you know none of that really kind of like ever went viral in the way that any of their artists did so you know and maybe because it was that they just didn't have the passion for it that they have for music like that example of Birdman so you know Jay clearly has the passion for the business he clearly has the passion for you know doing the champagne thing or you know doing the VC thing and you can tell because he, he he's out there doing it he loves he's doing it because he loves it and and he makes money but um, I think it's hard for something uh, to do well if you aren't truly passionate about it because consumers can kind of see through that and also you're not going to go the extra mile for something if you don't truly care about it either. definitely and mine is a little different and this may be more so from a selfish perspective of what I would do but that's part of the question yeah. right as someone that is such a fan of vibe and the culture that they were able to create, I want to be able to relive that in different ways. I wish that Birdman and the team could cash things up and there could be a true cash money reunion tour that goes across the country. I know there's been different things here or there, but the same way that Diddy did the big bad boy arena tour in 2016, I want to be able to see that. I'd love to be able to do that. And I also want to see a music biopic in the same style, the same budget and energy of Straight Outta Compton. I would love to see that about the cash money story. And to be honest, I feel like I know there's a lot of energy around these biopics, but like, I I mean, I may be biased because it's the genre I like. Since Straight Outta Compton came out, I just haven't seen one that's, you know, as good as that. And sometimes it's, it's been a bit frustrating when I see movies like Bohemian Rhapsody or Elvis, which I think they're fine, but I don't think they were yeah. as good as straight out of Compton and they're getting all these awards and stuff. And it makes me think that, okay, if there was, I don't know whether it's get, get F. Gary Gray back again or someone that can, you know, tell this story in a great way, I would love to see that unfold. But I think you would also need buy-in from the artist because obviously the fact that the relationships are straight can make some of this tough and the willingness to tell the story in honest way and the fact that there's kind of two sides to everything is Birdman going to be bought in if him and his brother are being shown as, you know, like predatory loan sharks, like screwing people over. Right. Are the artists going to be happy if it's making it seem too favorable to Birdman? So I know there's some contentions with how the story is told, but it's still something I would love to see done in the right way. Yeah. Not to mention, how would you clear all the music? You know, is everybody... <laughs> yeah. How, how would you handle that? Although maybe now it's a little bit more streamlined, but, uh, you know, again, like you know, a, a lot of different cooks in the kitchen there. So you never know. But yeah, no, I'd love to see that too. Oh man, that'd yeah. be a blast. All right. So last question here, who won? If there's one person, artist, executive from Cash Money, who would you say is the winner of everything that's happened over the past 30 plus years? You know, I think there's a lot of winners, a lot of losers, a lot of, you get kind of a little bit of both, but um, I'm going to go with Slim, you know? I mean, Slim has been in the background, like, Birdman has gotten some more of the glory, but he's also taken a lot more of the heat. I mean, he's taken basically all the heat, I think. And Slim has managed to just sit back, run this like incredible business and 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 make just a boatload of money without without taking some of the heat that his brother did. So uh, yeah, I, I'm going to go with Slim. How about that? <laughs> I want to know. What do you think? I like that answer. I'm glad you said that because yeah, yeah. I think if we both yeah. said Birdman, it would have been like, yeah, Birdman. But Birdman is my answer. The bidding wars that he won over the years, the ruthlessness of just getting the deals done, staying true to what he knows. There's a lot that I disagree with, and there's a lot that I wish that he had done differently and a bunch of missed opportunities. But 
they did something that we have not seen done in hip hop before. And we may not see that again, just because of how things have changed and evolved over time. So it really is a credit to that happening. So yeah, I love the slim take too, because the fact that he reaps the rewards without, you know, any of the backlash. like I can't, I've never seen anyone tweet or get frustrated about like, oh yeah, you know, Slim's really screwing these artists over. Slim's really doing right, this. You right. know what I mean? It's always a photo of Birdman, you know? <laughs> like, right. But yeah, oh man, such a such a fascinating, such a fascinating label. Yeah, before we close things out, any final thoughts on Cash Money Records? Well, you know, I would say also about Slim, you know, there's this, somebody had a, uh, a great quote. Uh, it was some writer and they it was some famous writer and they said, a writer's fame is the best fame because you are not famous enough to get bothered on the street, but you are famous enough to get a good table at a good restaurant. And, you know, in a way, I think that's that's kind of what Slim was able to do. Like he could get, you know, whatever he wants, he could have, but nobody's kind of bothering him about it. And I think that's how he wants it. And, you know, Birdman whatever he wants, he can have sort of, but he also, what he can't do is walk outside without, you know, everybody harassing him, you know? Uh, so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, to some extent he's more interested in the spotlight. You get the good with the bad, but you know, I think that spotlight, it's important, like to be able to turn it off is a really great luxury to have to turn it on and off. And, um, you know, once it's on all the time, you'll never be able to turn it off. So I, I do a hat to slim for that. Yeah, for sure. And, and Slim also didn't get memes made out of him from telling Charlemagne <laughs> off of the Breakfast Club either, or that, or that too, yeah, or the the Birdman hand rub, right? <laughs> yeah, the Birdman <laughs> hand rub, yeah, <laughs> the Doyle clap though. I mean, he did put on for that though. But man, what a moment! Yeah, yeah. All right, toast to Cash Money, and this this is a fun one. What a fascinating case study, and yeah, we're gonna we're gonna tell the stories that don't get told elsewhere. So, Zach. Thank you for coming through. And thanks again for this Young Money Cash Money t-shirt. For those folks watching on the videos, you can see this is the one last time I was in New York. Zach came through. He's like, I got something for you. And yeah, had to make it happen. <laughs> That's right. I should have worn mine today, but uh, <laughs> it, was in the, it was in the laundry, you know. It was in the laundry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Definitely. All right, man. Uh, Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. Thanks again. Yep. All right, cool. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Traffalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.